1017.com, the Boston Podcast Network. It's the Josh JP Philosophy. So here they are, Josh Cohen and JP Plunkett. Hello, everyone. Producer Dave here telling you, welcome back to the Josh and JP philosophy. Today on the show, Josh and JP, welcome Paul Earl, a principal of the company Earl and Company, which is an innovation and design company in Chicago. He's also a lecturer at the Kellogg School of Business and a contributor to Forbes magazine. Gentlemen, enjoy the show. Thank you, Dave. Welcome, Paul, on behalf of my uh, co-host, Josh. Great to have you on the show, and we're really excited to talk uh, innovation and, and branding. Um and I, I guess sort of out of the gate, um, what do you think about, you know, branding as it relates to COVID and post-COVID and, you know, how are companies adjusting the way they get messages across to uh, consumers? Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, great to be here. Great to see you guys. Great to be part of this. And, um, and um I was going to say, JP, you have a face made for podcasts. <laughs> and so do I. I still haven't been confused with George Clooney. Right. Still waiting for that. But, uh, uh, great, I'm not disagreeing. Great to, <laughs> great to be with you guys. Um, well, in terms of uh, marketing communications in the, uh, in the new world, you know, I think um, the, the jury's out on what the playbook should be what best practices are. I can say what you shouldn't do. No more sad piano, no more cliches with, you know, in these uncertain times, you know, in this <laughs> unprecedented period of, you know, just no more doom and gloom, please. Um, you know, no more cliched. We're in this together like that. You know, we're, we're operating in dog years at this point and that stuff feels very, you know, March 15th to me. So we've, we've got to get past the, the cliche. Um, and also all the, all the heavy, dark doom and gloom, even though it's a heavy, dark, gloomy period. Um, I think actually, uh, there's going to be a huge appetite, uh, for things that are light and airy and funny going forward. We're, we're going to be so ready for humor and, frankly, things that are silly and dumb, um, you know, things that are positive. If you look, if you look at what, uh, 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 the office guy, John Krasinski, am I pronouncing that correctly? He, he's from Newton, Massachusetts, actually. Is he really? I did oh, not yeah. know that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, his show was an instant success and was acquired like two months into its right. lifetime, which is incredible. And it just goes to show the you know, that there's a great appetite for things that are kind of lighter and um, easier to digest than all this doom and gloom all the time. So what do you... Um, go ahead, Jim. No, no, Josh, please. Sorry. Um, as far as the uh, companies re kind of rebranding themselves, uh, you know, I've seen, I'm affiliated with Northwestern Mutual, and the big push, obviously, today is diversity and inclusion and... What do you see out there in the marketplace as far as companies integrating to kind of make sure that their employees are aware of the cultural divide, so to speak, that we see today? Well, first of all, um, it's obviously really, really important. Um, you know, I'm aware of, for example, um, a brand new design firm in Minneapolis that was created 
specifically to help marketers um, better connect with uh, minorities um, and is founded by minorities. And, you know, it's, we, we, we have to recognize that America looks different um, than it did in the 1930s. <laughs> you know, it's been a long time, guys. We, we have to create uh, products and messaging that is reflective of all of us. Um, again, all of this is fairly obvious. I, you know, if I, I think, you know, while I support all efforts like this, if you really need to take a three week course on how to not be racist, right. you're in trouble already, racist. man. That's not good. I, 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 like, well said. No, you know, but, but this is, this is, this is all, you know, obviously really, really important. And, you know, we have to be you know, we've seen the powder keg that we live in. You have to be mindful and plugged into these issues. You're just, um, in addition to being wrong, you're stupid, not a very good business person. So, so th- that's, a, in my mind, a nice segue to another thing that we <clears throat> wanted to talk about today, and that's professional sports branding. And there's no longer a, a team known as the Washington Redskins. And before we get into some yeah. of the newer names for some other teams, Maybe we touch on sort of why did that happen? Should it have happened or what's going to be next for them? And then what teams maybe follow as it relates to maybe no more Atlanta Braves? Will there be no more Cleveland Kansas Indians. City Chiefs, you know, Cleveland Indians? So, Paul, what, what are your thoughts as a, as a branding guru um, on the social sort of um, justice side of rebranding pro sports teams? Well, I, so first of all, the Redskins – Never should have been called that to begin with. You know, imagine, imagine 1930s, the, uh, 1930s again. Imagine the, you know, Kansas City Jews. Yeah, the, right. You said it. You Josh said is it. Jewish. There we go. So, or the, you know, the so, Newark white people, whatever. I mean, it's, right. it's a ridiculously bad idea to begin with. Correct. You should not. It, they never should have been called that. Now, I do want to draw a distinction between sports teams um, with Native American names that are obviously exploitative and wrong, like the Redskins, and others that are more celebratory in nature, like you know the Braves, the Chicago Blackhawks. You know, the, the Chicago Blackhawks are not poking fun at the Blackhawk Indian tribe. They're not trying to exploit them or humiliate them or degrade them in any way. Actually, it's the opposite. They're celebrating, you know, the heritage and history of this great tribe and their traditions and design elements. And so um, I don't think anybody is saying that the Blackhawks ought to be renamed. You know, the Atlanta Braves, you know, again, that's they're celebrating Braves. They're right. not. They're brave. Now, they're courageous. They're, they're brave. Right? What, what, what about the Indian? What about the Indians? Well, I, that one is borderline to me. But but you know. But they got rid of Chief. Wah- they got rid of the goofy, almost imbecilic looking Chief Wahoo. Right. So if they go towards more of a Blackhawk, macho, strong leader of an Indian depiction, they should be fine. I would think so. And remember the um, hitting the wayback machine here. The the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, used to have a mascot named. Wait for it, Chief Nakahoma. 
Chief Nakahoma. And whenever, you know, Dale Murphy or whatever would hit a home run, he'd, he'd go berserk and go on the warpath. That was really bad. And Chief Nakahoma is wow. gonzo, I think appropriately so. So, again, it's common sense. This is not like NBA, you know, rocket science. There's no algorithm. It's common sense. If you're celebrating um, – a, a people, a tribe—that's a good thing. If you're exploiting them, and you know, insensitively um, b- being stupid, then uh, there we go. There's Chief Nakahomas. Um, don't do it. You know, again, a lot of this is just common sense. Couldn't agree more. Well, I know Josh and I wanted to talk to you about some of the the newer brands out there, and I guess the newest one would be the Seattle NHL franchise. And Paul, I know you have a lot to say about uh, the name that that they picked. Um, puzzling to all of us, so give us your thoughts on the Kraken. Is that how it's the Kraken? The Kraken, JP, not Kraken. Although that's uh, what it will become. Well, and it's going to offend crack dealers, so that name might not stick. <laughs> yeah, well, right, right out of the gates, the uh, they were you know people were saying that their fans are going to be called crackheads. The the stadium is going to become the Crack Shack or Crack House. And uh, I, I have to tell you, at first, I hated it. I thought it was terrible and an abomination and, you know, branding malpractice. It's growing on me a little bit because, so in, in our, the way we see it, and I advise my clients of this, and we do tons of naming, by the way, our, my company does. We've named a bunch of uh, products out there, some of which are, are doing really, really well. So we do lots of naming and a name should be um it should be relevant to your market or to your product it can't be random and 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 unattached it has to has to tie into what you're doing somehow it should be easy to pronounce and say easy to spell um so kraken gets an f on that measure because it sounds terrible it's kind of hard on the ear is it Kraken? Is it Kraken? Is it C-R-A-C-K or K-R-A hard K? Like who, nobody, this is going to be the most mispronounced and misspelled name in the history of sports, at least for a while. Um, you know, I thought it was kind of silly. They had a lot of really good alternatives at the, you know, the Seattle sockeyes was on the table. I like that. You know, it's a, it's a fish that's native to the region. It rolls off the tongue nicely. Um, it has some kind of like vague inference to hockey with a sock in the eye. You know, it's, you can kind of see how you could have some fun with that. Um, JP, you had a great idea, which incidentally I found out after the fact the team um, leaders were thinking of also. And that's acquiring and leveraging the name Supersonics, which is a great brand. Love it. So I just thought, it, yeah, it's a great idea. I thought um, this was a huge miss. It's growing on me a little bit only because I learned later that there is some relevance of Kraken to the Seattle area. You know, obviously it's a Mariner culture. That's why their baseball team is called the Mariners. It's a, it's a C sea-bearing, sea-ocean culture. The Seahawks. The Seahawks. And apparently there is some local kind of 
mythological belief that there is a kraken that lives somewhere off the shore. A of Loch Ness Seattle. monster type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Creature. So when I learned that, there we go. I, I, I'm looking at the screen. Yeah. No when S I on the end. That, it, it started to grow on me a little bit. But also, by the way, you know, you want to you want to um, pick a name that has lots of upside, but you also want to do like downside mitigation wow. and figure out like, OK, what are all the things that could go wrong? And there's just a lot of it here. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of risk. And, um, you know, un- amongst other things, it's a very successful brand of rum. And uh, some people I spoke to in the in the beverages industry assumed that Kraken Rum obviously is the is the brand that's that bought the team, which is wrong. You know, so you want You don't want risk of confusion out there. Paul, I had a question changing the subject uh, from a business standpoint. What companies, in your opinion, are at the forefront of marketing out there today that you see some may, may you may or may not have helped? And also, why is this the case with these companies and their branding? Boy, I'd have to really give some thought to who's doing it well. Man, oh man, that's a tough one. That's like, you know, you, that's... that's uh, Josh is tough. Yeah, tough. You're, yeah, tough. Hey, you're the expert, Paul. We got, you, we, got, we got you on the cast for a reason. Do you mean like new new brands that have been created? New brands, existing brands. You know, I always think mm-hmm. about, um, obviously, commercials that I see and that, that you can... Uh, visualize the Bud Light commercials, obviously for years, you know, were fun to watch and easy to, you know, makes you want to drink Bud Light. But mm-hmm. what other companies that you see out there, you know, Fortune 500 companies have really upped their game in the last couple of years and, and, and what have they done specifically? Well, there's a, there's a, uh, one of my favorite new, I can tell you about some of my favorite new brands. Um, Go for it. One of them is called Hello which is a brand of, uh, it started as toothpaste and mouthwash. And now they're, they've been acquired by Colgate and are branching into lots of other products like deodorant and other kind of personal care items. And I like that one just cause it's beautifully designed. It's friendly. It's fun. Um, the, the founder is a, one of my, one of my best buddies and I know him well. And he, it, it, it hello is so interesting because, if you look at oral care, you know, the convention there is all about, you know, you're on battle footing, you're, you're fighting cavities, destroy plaque, eliminate bad breath, <laughs> annihilate gum disease, all this stuff. And he kind of changed the dialogue, changed the conversation in that space by saying, you know, this should be friendly. This is, should not be about destroying anything. You know, you should have good breath and healthy teeth so you can, you can um, greet people in a nicer way, get closer to people, etc. So that's one of my favorite brands. There's another one out there I really like that's new called Ollie, and it's a, a brand of vitamins. These guys also got, just got acquired um, by Unilever in this case. And again, if you look at, if you think about what the vitamin aisle used to be, um, you know, even you know five, ten years ago, it was cluttered. It was ugly. It was chaotic, messy, you know, you don't know, it's poorly labeled. You don't know what you're buying. Pricing would fluctuate like airline prices. Am I getting a deal? Am I getting ripped off? You have no idea. And, and what Ollie did was come in with a, 
a kind of a simple, fun to say, human, warm, friendly brand with a really uh, simple design aesthetic and added something that made sense into a really, there it is, um, in a really, uh, you know, hideous space. And it, w- it was an instant hit. Like this went to from zero to a hundred million in revenue practically overnight. And it seems obvious in hindsight. Well, you know, all, the, you, all, all the great ones do like Uber, they all do Uber and Lyft. Everybody says, Oh, I, I could have invented that. Well, yeah. You, well, you didn't, it wasn't that obvious. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sign of any good idea. It seems obvious in hindsight. So well, I, I could go on and on. There's so many great new brands well, out there. Well, that's exciting. And I, I, to go back um, a little bit, some of the work that you were involved with acquiring and repositioning dormant brands, I find yep. that fascinating. And correct me if I'm wrong, but but one of the brands that um, your team um, put together um, out of the dust, if you will, was Pert Shampoo. Uh, not pert. It was uh, salon selectives. Excuse me. Okay, <laughs> remember that stuff. Smelled like apples. Yeah, catchy yeah. Jingle. Oh, there you go. Right. Salon right. selectives. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just I'll wreck all your 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 listening audience if I sing any further. So I won't no, do that. Don't. So 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 how? Uh, tell us about some of the brands that um, you uh, acquired. How long were they mothballed? How do you mm-hmm. acquire them? And then. Uh, how do you reposition them and, and then what's like the next step to try to sell them? Yeah. Well, that was a fun part of my career in life. And so that was a company I started in 2001. Um, and the original thesis was to acquire really small businesses that were kind of um, afterthoughts within huge companies. And what was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s is um, these giant companies were merging, you know, uh, P&G and Gillette merged, General Mills and Pillsbury, Kraft and Nabisco, um, Quaker and Pepsi. You know, these huge companies were merging like crazy and getting even bigger. And what they were doing basically was pulling the plug on, on non-core businesses. So, so to me, this was an opportunity to to uh, to you know find a value buy and and raise some capital and take out one of these kind of small afterthought businesses because you know a lot of these things didn't even have really people working on them and I figured that you know even hiring sales brokers to get from you know ten percent distribution to twenty percent distribution you know you're doubling the business just by thinking about it <laughs> you know right. so so that was the the thesis and then we um i i brought in a partner we had some financial uh, backers lined up we were looking at acquiring a small portfolio of chewing gum brands out of at the time Warner Lambert which itself is now gone um it was blackjack gum Beeman's gum and clove gum if you guys remember those clove really really gum. old Blackjack. Yep. yep. So yep. we taste lasts for two minutes and then it's gone. Exactly. Exactly. But but it was they're great brands and we um, we had a deal in place in principle to acquire that portfolio and we we're going to bring in outside capital and the date was I think September eighth two thousand one. So obviously <laughs> um, when September eleventh hit, 
and the financial disaster debacle unfolded in its wake, you know, there went our ability to, to raise outside capital at least anytime soon. And so we, out of necessity, and this ended up being um, kind of serendipitous for us, we, we moved our focus from small existing, you know, businesses like five, 10, $15 million businesses, which required outside capital to abandoned trademarks. And we figured out that, um, that if, if the trademark rights to a name are abandoned, they're literally, literally they're returned to the public domain. They be the, the rights evaporate. And we figured that we could acquire the rights to well-known names just through the trademark application process. So we acquired, uh, Coleco, which was uh, a big toy brand, uh, actually a New England success story. It was based in Hartford, Connecticut, and Hasbro had acquired Coleco and kept all their product lines and then retired the name Hasbro or uh, the name Coleco. So we acquired Coleco and brought that back as a line of um, handheld uh, games, you know, electronic quarterback, all that stuff. We acquired uh, Salon Selectives, which is a great, famous. There it is. <laughs> Good Holy cow. There you go. That, again, not me singing. But, you know, that was a famous brand. Anybody, you know, 35 and over knows it. You know, it had like 90% name recognition. So we did that one. We, um, we had some success with Eagle Snacks. If you remember that one, it sure. was a line of... Um, of salty snacks that Anheuser-Busch created and then um, very long, crazy story about how that one got went from $400 million all the way down to literally zero. So we, uh, we worked with Procter & Gamble on that one. They had acquired the name because they owned Pringles at the time and they were trying to build out their, their snack portfolio. So anyway, we had a lot of fun and um, people think that we were doing that to kind of leverage nostalgia, like, you know, warm fuzzies from the past and, you know, fond memories of bygone days and aftermath of September 11th and this surge of Americana and, and, you know, happier times. That was actually not the case at all, even a little bit. We were pure opportunists and arbitrageurs because we knew that, for example, you know, we acquired the rights to Brim Coffee. Wow. Fill it to the rim. Fill it brim. to the rim, right. And, brim. you know, that business was zero. Like, Kraft had taken it all the way to the bottom and then discontinued it. You know, same with Nuprin. We, we owned that for a period of time. Don't forget about the Well, it's Sanka. <laughs> yeah, Sanka. Paul, don't but, forget um, about the Reggie bar. We can't end this. I'll play that story we, we, in a second, yeah. too. But we, you know, we we knew that there was a huge gap between what these names were worth, which is tens of millions of dollars, and what we could get them for, which was peanuts, right? Because <laughs> that's the name way to do of, it. Name, yeah. So name awareness. Like if you were to start a brand new brand today from scratch and you wanted to build it to the point where nine out of 10 people in the United States know the name, it would cost you $500 million. Right. Super Bowl ads, et cetera. Exactly. But we knew we were able to get names with national 
recognition for nothing. So it was, we were arbitrageurs really at the end of the day. So the Reggie Barr story. Josh, that's a um, noble's word, by the way. You didn't learn that at there. Arbitrageurs. Milton Academy, Dave, maybe. But that's definitely a, a Dick Baker, Noble and Greeno uh, English class word. I love it, Erzy. E-U-R, arbitrageur. Um, so uh, the Reggie Barr story. So, you know, I'm a, a, a product of the 70s, as are you, JP. I can't speak for you other guys, but... You know, I remember the. They the, are. Na- okay, good. The yeah. na- the phenomenon that was the Reggie Bar, and uh, I loved it myself. Reggie it Jackson of the Yankees for the listeners Reggie that Jackson. aren't baseball aficionados, but I think everybody knows the Reggie Bar. They were delicious. The, the straw that stirs the drink, he said. The, the, the uh, I love Reggie Jackson. By the way, Reggie Jackson has one of the great quotes of all time in all of sports and maybe life. And so he, little known fact, Reggie Jackson, I believe, is the all-time, by a mile, not even close, the all-time leader in strikeouts. <laughs> and by a mile, I don't yeah. think anyone's even close. Correct. And someone asked him, you know, hey, Reggie, you're, you know, nobody has struck out more than you. And he said, hey, baby, it's the home runs people remember. That's right. <laughs> and he hit plenty of them. Right. 560 some odd. But tell us about his yeah. candy bar and your efforts to possibly acquire it. Yeah, so we we um, we were very interested in bringing that back. We, the name was expired. And we had a supplier in Tennessee lined up. I can't remember the name, but we, we actually found someone who could make it. It's it's much more complicated than you think to make. <laughs> There's, it's, it's, it, it's not that simple. We, so we found someone who could actually make it, this company in Tennessee. I'll have to look it up. And, uh, but we knew that if we're going to revive the Reggie Bar, you kind of have to, like, it's not like it's a, a nameless, faceless name like Brim or Coleco that is not associated with a living human. You, you kind of can't do the Reggie bar without Reggie. It would be inauthentic and litigation risk, all this stuff. And nor should we like, you know, you got to have Reggie if you're going to do Reggie in this case. So, Mm -hmm. so we, we found his agent um, who's at that time. So the timeline here is about 2002 and I would estimate his agent to be somewhere between 95 and 110 years old. So we, <laughs> something like that, somewhere in that range. So we tracked him down and we said, Hey, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, we want to bring this back and we want your consent and we'll cut you in on it. And the terms that they requested were, were mind boggling. You know, they, they, they negotiated this as if it were 1978 again. Yeah. And we just, there is no way our company or, or any sane person would even come close to, to paying the ransom that they asked. And so we ended up not doing it, unfortunately. But it was really fun. And this, this guy, this agent who I will not name, I think he represented Tom Seaver. He, he, would, he like his client list were all of my favorite guys from growing up. So it's, and it was a wonder, he was a wonderful guy, actually. And it just made me think that the guy demanding these wildly excessive payments was probably not him, but his client 
Reggie Jackson, <laughs> which kind of lines up. So um, we ended up right. unfortunately not doing that one. We tried though. Well, um, Josh, any last points before we um, say a great? Yeah, one one quick question, kind of on that same topic is obviously you have the mind to do this. How do you come up with find those brands, and what's the research process like to find those brands to kind of revitalize? That is a great question. We got that all the time. And, um, and our process was totally non-scientific, which, which by the way, made it nearly impossible for anyone to replicate <laughs> because, you know, we, we searched, we had lots of ways of finding brands. We, we would literally, I remember this like it was yesterday. There was about a two week period. This was in about 2001 or 2002 where I spent probably 10 hours, swear to God, 10 hours a day in the Chicago Public Library. By the way, that is not a place where you want to spend 10 minutes a day, never mind 10 hours a day. I was in the Chicago Public Library going through old copies of Time and Newsweek and Sports Illustrated and all these um, Life Magazine, etc. And I was looking for um, names that were famous, but I didn't recall seeing it recently in the marketplace. And so probably compiled a thousand candidates. And then you, you have to start searching to see if they're still out there. And of the thousand, you're lucky if five or 10 remain standing. And it, they had to be well known. Otherwise, what's the point? And completely off the market. Even even if there were any sales at all, it would really complicate our acquisition strategy. It had to be off completely because we didn't want to get into the business of buying inventory or plants and equipment or any of that stuff. It was IP, you know, intangible assets only. So we, you know, it was basically a, a you know, it was a massive canvassing process and then exhaustive diligence to make sure that we found stuff that was well known but gone completely and and we ultimately did we ended up um acquiring probably 20 of them and then we did some transactional work also like nuprin is an example of a famous um brand that was dormant at the time and we basically brokered that one to cvs so once we be ah, we, nuprin. Uh, little nuprin. yellow nuprin. different there it is there that you got it yeah so once we developed our expertise in this kind of you know brand revival space and we're highly specialized dormant brand revival we were able to build a nice business just as an advisor and and um and kind of broker also so it was a lot of fun and and uh, i had a blast well th th this um segment of our podcast has been a blast and a lot of fun and uh, it's been great covering you know with paul earl um all things innovation and branding uh, from yesterday and today business world sports world please check him out uh, at forbes it's a great great read he's a regular contributor to forbes and i know that i really enjoy it um on behalf of dave and, and josh uh i'd like to thank you paul Anybody's well, happy to be here, guys. That, that I, I enjoyed it too. Um, do I have time for one postscript? Yes, sure. Thank you. So, I am completely out of the dormant brand business, more or less. Although my company, that we um, we recently revitalized an old one. 
with a through a partner, I co-own Frozen Glaja. You guys remember Frozen Glaja with Hawken? So we that's that's one property that remains. And so any ideas, call me. Absolutely, excellent. So, we'll do, guys. That's wonderful. Huge honor to be on. Super fun, and uh, and thanks for having me. You got it. Thanks for coming on the show, Paul. Thank you. All right, guys. Bye bye. All right, talk to you later. Just JP Philosophy is a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Share it with a friend or a colleague in your network who would be interested. The show is supported by Red Dome Realty and Legacy Financial Group. For more information on these organizations and how to get in touch with your host, check the show notes of this podcast.